Good morning, everyone. I hope you're enjoying the sunshine. It's been wonderful. I think the month of May has just been a blessing. It continues on, and I am loving every minute of it. Looking forward to, we're, actually, we're in June, aren't we? Never mind. <laughs> See how quickly it went, how wonderful that was? We're going to be in Romans 16 today, where every good thing must come to an end. Romans is a good thing, and unfortunately, it's coming to an end. But I would encourage you to stay in Romans and do some reading on your own and love that book. I gave it a flyover. I'll be honest with you. There's so much there I could have, I could have preached on this book forever. So it's up to you now to take it, love it, read it. Come with questions. If you read something you don't get, bring it. I love talking about things like that. But invest some time into the book of Romans because it's the cornerstone, I really believe, of the New Testament. It's the cornerstone of the gospel. And I hope you caught that as we've gone through this great book. So we're going to be in chapter 16 today, bringing it to a close. It's a great chapter, and there's a whole lot of names in this great chapter. So we're going to be skimming through them and highlighting some of them as we move forward. About three, four weeks ago, I went to a movie over at Clackamas Town Center, Avengers Infinity War. How's that sound? Marvel Comics. Some of you love those, and I, am, I like them. They're entertaining. They are an escape into the fantasy world, and it's fun and, and all that kind of stuff, and, you know, the superhero thing. I'm more of a, I like movies that are more real life that tell the stories, true stories, but, but I went and enjoyed it. And at the end of the movie, you probably know what I'm talking about, and some of you like to do this. You like to stick around when the movie's over to see the, the credits as they're scrolling through. What some of these movies have done nowadays is they've inserted a little video clip in like at the end of the credits. Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of them are funny, maybe just kind of a comical thing. Some of them maybe give a clue to what the next in the series is going to be. So now it's, it's customary maybe to stay around and watch the, cr the credits just kind of scrolling on the screen as the music's playing at the end of the movie. So we're sitting there and I was blown away now, I know it takes a lot of people to make movies. It's kind of a no-brainer. I was blown away as it just kept scrolling. I can't even venture a guess how many people it took to make that movie. It was unbelievable. And we sat there. I don't even know how long. We just sat there and watched names scroll by. Finally, there was a little video clip at the very end. And we, so we were rewarded for our patience. But today, Paul is closing credits, closing on the book of Romans, giving some names of people that he loved, people that were important in his ministry. And who are these people? We're going to look at them a little bit today. I think it's important as we read this that we're reminded our lives and, our, and those of us in ministry, they don't just happen. We need help from people to support us, to encourage us, to work alongside us. And that's really the people that Paul's talking about here in this chapter. The, I think also in this chapter, it kind of dispels this notion that people have of Paul sometimes, that he's kind of this person kind of off doing his own thing out here, moving around the world, taking the gospel, and kind of disconnected from people, and kind of this person who is in the books all the time, and 
reading and thinking and writing and doesn't have time for people. I hope that after you see this chapter, you'll get the idea that Paul loved people. He was a people person. And he recognized people as important in his life and he gave them credit. There's 33 names listed in this great chapter. In verses 1 through 16, he's writing to a group of people who are in Rome. There's about 24 names listed there. And then later on in the chapter, he's going to mention some people that are with him in Corinth as he's writing this book and as he's getting it ready to send to Rome. So he's going to give credit there. So I think what you're going to see today also is the diversity and unity in this chapter, and it'll come out. Diversity, what do I mean by that? About a third of the names listed are women that he recognizes Uh, There's a handful of slaves that are mentioned by Paul, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. There's also some people listed in this chapter that are very wealthy, that had positions of authority in the Roman government. So you have slaves, you have people of high position, you have male, female, you have a lot of Jews, my brethren. These are my brothers, he says, these Jewish believers. But there's also a lot of Gentiles in the list. So... There's this incredible diversity, but yet the thing that ties them all together is the phrase, in the Lord, in Christ. It occurs ten times in this chapter. What draws everybody together, what unifies them, depending on who they are and the diversity, is they're in Christ. Isn't that the story of the gospel? Isn't that the story of our church? The diversity of who we are, but yet we're in Christ. And that's what makes us united and draws us together. And we can put aside even those things sometimes that can cause us those divisions. We've been talking about that in the book of Romans. So, he acknowledges these people for two reasons. Number one, he wanted to greet them and assure them that even though he was away from them geographically, he still thought of them, he still cared about them. And there had been a lot of times, some of them he had never, hadn't met for a long time, and he'd been away from them, but he wanted them to know that he cared for them. But he also wanted them to know that his interest in them was personal. It wasn't utilitarian. It wasn't to get something from them, but it was because he cared for them as individuals. There's two questions I want you to consider as we read this chapter. The first question is, who do I need to give credit to in my life? Who are the people that I need to just say thank you? and to give credit to for their part in my life, for contributing to my ministry. One person that comes immediately to my mind, and I'll have the honor and the privilege to do that next Saturday, is Dick Johnson. Great man. Um, He was here for a lot of years with us. He contributed to my life. I will have the opportunity to say thank you to him and to his family and to recognize him for that. And I know as you think about this, There's a lot of people probably in your life that you would love to do that for. And I encourage you to don't wait until a memorial service. Please, say it. Call them up. Write a letter. Have you ever gotten a letter from somebody just saying thank you? I have a few of those still on my desk that have come from people over the years. I keep those because they mean a lot to me. Uh, Facebook messages, all those things. There's so many ways we can communicate, but I want to encourage you to do that to people. Say thank you. This, you played this part in my life, and I want to give you credit for that. 
There's a quote by a great writer, his name is William Barclay. He says, it's a great thing to go down in history as the man with the open house or the woman who worked hard. He's speaking of some of the people listed in Romans 16 here. Someday people will sum us up in one sentence. What will that sentence be? Wow. So here's the question for you today. If someone were to summarize your life and ministry in one sentence or a few words, what would it be? What would that look like? It's something to to think about in the big questions of life. So let's read verses 1 to 16. This is the list. Greetings to those who are in Rome. People that were special. This is the first 16 verses of Romans 16 here. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kentre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people, to give her any help that she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my co-workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ Jesus before I was. Greet Ampliatus, my dear friend in the Lord. Again, some of these names are kind of tough to pronounce. You're probably getting that as I read these. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stacky. I don't even know how to say that one, I'll be honest. Greet Apollos, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Isn't that a beautiful statement about someone's life? Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphenia and Tryphosa those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asencretus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermes, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Again, I, pronunciation is brutal on these. Greet Philopagus, Julia, Nereus and his sister and Olympus and all the Lord's people who are with them. If they were here today, they'd probably be cringing as I read these names. Oh, missed that one, missed that one. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. Okay, so who are these people in Rome? Paul had met them at different times in his journeys. Um, Probably some of them had been a long time, maybe. But they're in Rome. And Paul is writing this letter from Corinth, and he's sending the letter by the first person that he mentions, who is Phoebe. Phoebe, her name means pure, bright, radiant. It's actually one of the names of the goddess Diana, one of the Greek goddesses that was worshipped in Ephesus. I mentioned her name earlier, but the temple to Diana, or Artemis, was common in the Roman world. But he says it's our sister, she was saved, most likely saved out of that culture, out of the Greek paganism of the time. He refers to her as the word in the NIV is deacon, but the word is actually diakonos. It's the Greek word for servant. 
It's a, it can be a general word or it can be a word that refers to the actual church office of deacon. And different translations take it differently. Some you will read Phoebe is a servant. Some of them read Phoebe is a deacon. And the argument for deacon is that, that there's a church associated with it. She's not just a servant, but she's the servant of the church at Kentray which was a seaport about seven miles south of Corinth. So argument is that she was actually a deacon at that particular church. She served there. That's what deacons do. They're servants. That's what the word literally means. That's what they do. 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 11 is one of those passages that is in the debate of officers in the church. And here's, I'll just read this to you and then show you kind of where it fits in this. In the same way, deacons, they're to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. That's what deacons do, they serve. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy, in everything. Again, different translations take that word in verse 11. It can either read the women or the wives, referring to the wives of the deacon. There's an argument there. However, what you see if you take the full passage going back up to verse 1 is talking about overseers. It starts out with what are the qualities of an elder or an overseer or a bishop? There's different words used for that title, that office in the church, what are the qualities of an overseer? And verses 1 through 7 list out the qualities, the character qualities, and it lists one ability that they need to have. They need to be apt to teach elders. So starts out with verses 1 through 7, overseers, that office. Then likewise, in the same way, deacons who serve alongside the elders. And then in verse 11, in the same way, Kind of continuing on, there's an, to me it seems to demonstrate there's kind of an office there of women who serve as deacons. So we benefit, and church history bears this out, as you look at church history, women served as deacons in churches. They did things like, did bapti they baptized women, they taught women and children, they did a lot of the caring for the poor and the needy in that church. They did a lot of the service duties that deacons do. And there's a history of women serving as deacons in the early church. And I just want to say, for me, as a pastor here at Clackamas Bible, we have benefited greatly by the addition of Velma and Sue as deacons here at Clackamas Bible. I can't say enough about having them as women ministering with women. It was always kind of awkward. Here's one of those deals with men as deacons, which is great, but part of this ministry of deacons is serving widows and caring for women. Sometimes that can be difficult as men for a lot of reasons. One is we don't fully maybe understand women, to be honest. We struggle. <laughs> to have two, yeah, yeah, right here, guilty as charged. So to have two ladies that just say, I got it, and they meet with them and they talk and they go out for coffee and they minister to them, it's been huge. It has changed 
everything, and I can't say enough about Sue and Velma, and there's other ladies that do that. They just don't have the official recognition of the office. That's really the only difference between them. The other thing about Phoebe that's really important, we wouldn't have the letter to the Romans if not for Phoebe. She was the one who took it from Corinth to Rome. That was a huge responsibility. Think about this. Paul, there was no Xerox machines back in the day. So Paul wrote this letter to the church at Rome on whatever, papyrus or whatever was there, and he said, okay, Phoebe, this is a huge responsibility, but here is a book of the Bible, Romans. Think about it. I'm going to trust you to take this to the church in Rome with you. Now, there's another word in this passage. It says she was a benefactor, benefactor to many, including me, Paul says. What does that mean? Patroness, benefactor, someone with financial means who backed Paul and other people in the church of Corinth, who financially supported them there. The word benefactor literally means one who stands by in case of need. Isn't that a great word? Paul says, Phoebe stood by me when I needed financial help. She was one of those people in my lives, and she had the financial means to do that. So Paul wants to honor her first on the list. She was important, and without her, we wouldn't have Romans. So it's pretty important to start out with Phoebe, and she, she delivered the letter. She was going to Rome probably for some business and did that for us. Verses 3 to 5, Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned. This is a couple that Paul met. He met them in, actually in Corinth on his second missionary journey, and they were tent makers. They had fled out of Jerusalem because Claudius, the Roman emperor at the time, was starting to persecute Christians. And so as a result of that, they fled and left Jerusalem and went to Corinth, and they were making tents, and Paul joined them as a tent maker. And I can imagine Paul sitting, making tents together with these two and talking about the gospel, talking about Jesus, talking about all of those wonderful things that he wrote for us in the book of Romans. I can just picture him sitting, making a tent together. It was his way of earning some money. It was his way of supplying some of his financial needs. And he worked with them there. Later on, we read in Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 19, that they went with Paul from Corinth to Ephesus. And while they were in Ephesus, they met a guy named Apollos. And they took Apollos in. They heard him preach in the synagogue. And it says that he was preaching the baptism of John. He hadn't gotten the complete picture of who Jesus Christ and what the gospel fully represented. So they brought in Apollos and taught him, Priscilla and Aquila together, that couple. So they played a big role. Later on, they ended up in Rome, and they actually had a church in their home in Rome. So we know historically they moved from Corinth to Ephesus, and now they're in Rome currently. And Paul's writing to them, thanking them for the time when he was a tent maker, for their ministry and how they supported him. It mentions the fact that they risked their lives for me. Most likely, in Acts 19, it talks about a riot that happened in the town of Ephesus when they were there. And Paul started to preach the gospel and that these idols were false gods. And there's a problem with that. If you're making money off the business, Demetrius the silversmith was there, and he was making good money off of building shrines and idols 
to worship these false gods. And so Paul comes along and these other people, and they're talking about Jesus Christ and these false gods are fakes. That doesn't do your business very well. So there was this riot that occurred. Most likely, maybe Paul was referring to in somewhere in that period of time, Priscilla and Aquila maybe helped him get out of that. They risked their lives. They did something special for him. Eponidas, verse five, Paul mentions at the end of verse five there, being the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Ephesus was the capital of that part of the world, and this was the first person that came to know Christ in that region. So Paul singles that person out and remembers that. You know, it's interesting. If you've had the opportunity to lead someone to Christ, you remember that person. When I was in college, um, I was over in Europe. I got to travel and play basketball and share the gospel. I'll never forget one night, my first, it was early on in the trip. I was 19 years old. I was just a kid. I played basketball. It was halftime, and I was the one chosen to share my testimony. And what was funny about this group, it was basketball players and cheerleaders. We would literally sing. Not well, but we would actually get out there, and one of the guys played guitar, and we would try to sing. We would try to sing in French, and we were in France and Germany, and try to do it in French and German. And Anyway, I shared my testimony, and after the game was over, we just kind of stood out on the court and talked. People came up, and they were curious about who we were and what we were doing there. This young man probably, he was probably about 10, came up to me and said, I want to receive Jesus. And I did, kind of, you know, it's kind of one of those, you know, you're talking, and I, I kind of did a double take, you what? You want to receive what? It just, sho- it just literally shocked me. It, it was just weird because I had just shared the gospel, you know, telling people about Jesus, and, but it still kind of caught me off guard, so I had the opportunity to just take him and pray with him. I grabbed another teammate, and we just prayed with him, and he came to know the Lord. Well, what's really cool about that story is two years later, we went back to the same town, and that young man joined our team. Uh, he was still following the Lord, which is a huge encouragement to me. He still loved Jesus, and when we came back two years later, he, he joined us, and he got to stay with me in the host homes. So me and a couple other players and this now 13-year-old young man, 12, 13, traveled with us, and I got to know him and encourage him along and, and make sure he was connected to a church. That was special. He was the first person I led to the Lord. I'll never forget it. I'll never forget it in my life. And that's this person in Paul's life. He says, greet Mary in verse 6, who worked very hard for you. This theme of working hard is found throughout this chapter. Mary, in verse 6, he's already says, Phoebe, fellow servant of mine. She works. Uh, Quilla and Priscilla, who work for me. Then he mentions... Uh, Urbanus in verse 9, he mentions Tryphena and Tryphosa. I did a little research on that. They're two twins whose names mean dainty and delicate. How's that? But yet they're hard workers. They work. They work hard, he says. And then Persis in verse 12. So here's a list of people, most of them women, who work hard. These are hard workers. They're out there serving. They're out there doing things. They're fellow workers with me, Paul says, in the gospel. It's beautiful. Then verse 7, Andronicus and Junia. Now, there's a lot of theological debate back and forth. Is Junia a man or a woman? 
back and forth. And the reason why this comes up and why it's important to some because it lists them in the, in the same breath as apostles. So can a woman be an apostle? If, if, if Junia was a woman, can she be an apostle? So all this comes up in debate, and I won't bore you with all that, just to say I think I believe that she is a woman. I think most Bible scholars now have kind of said that this is maybe a husband-wife team. This is, um, but she is most likely a woman. That's kind of the general view. Um, Paul says they were kinsmen. They're Jewish. We share Jewish heritage together. They were fellow prisoners. We don't know where, but at some point in their time with Paul, they'd been in prison with with him, we don't know what that is. And then it says they were outstanding among the apostles. That's the part that gets a little bit of play in the theological circles a little bit. What does that mean? There's three different views. One of the views is that they were considered apostles with a capital A. By apostle I mean the 12 who were with Jesus and then they added Matthias after Judas Iscariot committed suicide. They added Matthias in the book of Acts. The 12 plus Paul of those who had witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those that wrote scripture, those that started churches, the apostles with a capital A. Maybe were they apostles with a capital A? That's one view. The second view is that they, it means they were highly regarded by the apostles. They were known by the apostles. They were highly regarded by the apostles who knew them or were of their ministry and respected by the apostles is probably, in my opinion, the better view. And then the third one is apostles with a, with a small a. Apostles are mentioned in spiritual gift lists um, in a couple. And the word actually means those that are sent out. So as time went on, after the original apostles were established and they had established churches and wrote, wrote scripture, the word apostles with a small a came to mean more along the lines of missionaries, those that were sent out from the local body of, of a church, or church planters, those that went and planted a church, things like that. So you have apostles with a big A, apostles with a little a, meaning missionaries or church planters. Um, or it just simply means they were highly regarded by the apostles. I kind of take the middle view on that one, but... These are the things that theologians love to discuss and why that, this one comes up a lot when you re, do some reading. They were in Christ before me, Paul says. They were believers before I was. And so maybe even there was some teaching that went on. Maybe there were some things that um, you know, they brought to Paul's attention. We don't know. The next 20 names in verses 8 to 16 offer very little information, and they're very difficult to pronounce, as I found out as I read them. There's a couple I want to just note. Um, <clears throat> the first one is, it mentions the household of Aristobulus in verse 20. Excuse me, in verse 10. Household of Aristobulus. Aristobulus was the grandson of King Herod the Great. King Herod the Great was the, was the Jewish ruler at the time of the birth of Jesus. He was the one who was going to kill the babies, the wise men. He was, that was the Herod the Great. So, Aristobulus was the grandson related to Herod the Great. He was also a close friend with Emperor Claudius on the Roman side, who <clears throat> was a persecutor of the church early on, and then, if you read Roman history, next in line was Nero. A lot going on there, but basically they just got rid of Claudius, they killed him, 
and inserted Nero next in line. And we all, Nero was the one who took Paul's life. Nero was the crazy, literally crazy person who just took joy in killing Christians. So Nero is now on the throne. And what had happened was Aristobulus, being a wealthy person, had slaves, household servants. And his servants, when he died, had been given to Claudius, the Roman emperor. And then after Claudius, they were in the household of Nero and in that whole as he ruled. And so here are slaves who knew Jesus, but yet they were serving Nero in the Roman courts. So you can get this picture of how there's this influence of Christ even with a person like Nero in the Roman rules of the time and the the incredibly dark history of Roman period. So Paul's writing to these slaves and encouraging, encouraging them and say, you know, keep speaking about Jesus, keep living that life. So there's slaves here. Then we have um, Rufus in verse 13. <clears throat> Mark 15, 21 tells us this. This is the story that Mark tells about Jesus. He's on the way to Calvary. It says, A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. We all know that story of Simon of Cyrene. He was from northern Africa. He just happened to be there for the festival. And next thing you know, they're saying, hey, carry this guy's cross. So he's bearing the cross of Jesus. He mentions two sons. One of them is Rufus. And Mark actually wrote from Rome, and he was writing to Romans. And most Bible scholars believe that this Rufus is one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene that had navigated at, over time from North Africa now to Rome. And he was there, and he was part of the church. And so there's this tie with, this, with the person of Jesus Christ and the story of the cross in Rufus. Um, I find that very interesting. Verse 16, greet one another with a holy kiss. In their culture, that's affectionate greeting. It's what you did on the side of the, side of the cheek, sorry. You would kiss someone on the side of the cheeks. If you've been to Europe, Mexico, many countries, that's what they do. And for us in our Western culture, it can take you back a little bit at first to have a complete stranger come up and kiss you on the cheeks. It's like, whoa, a little too much. Sorry, no. But it would, for us today in our culture, be a you know, handshake, a good hug, I care for you. That's what, that's, that's what he's saying by greet one another with a holy kiss. Now he's going to give some words of warning, verses 17 through 20. I urge you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. For such people are not serving our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I rejoice because of you, but I want you to be wise about what is good, and I want you to be innocent about what is evil. We'll talk about that one a little bit. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Wow, what a beautiful verse that is. Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, it's that same word, chapter 12, verse 1. It's the Greek word there is parakaleo. It's the verb form of the noun paraclete. 
The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. Jesus was a paraclete, one who comes alongside to help. That's what that word means. So what Paul's saying is, I'm not necessarily commanding you and pointing a finger at you, but I'm coming alongside you as a paraclete to encourage you to watch out. There's two actions, he says in verse 17. Number one, watch out for them. Scopos is the Greek word there. Literally, it's a word that we get microscope or telescope. It's watch them carefully, uh, carefully examine, make sure you're paying attention. It's that get down to the details of what they're talking about before you just buy into it. So first command is watch out. Number two, keep away. Simply put, don't try to argue them. Don't even try to argue them back to what's right. It's probably best at this point just to keep away from them because they're very good. They're very deceitful. What do they do? Well, there's two things. Number one, they cause divisions among you. People who split up a group in two factions and cause arguments. Um, Proverbs 6, 16 to 19 gives us the wisdom of Solomon. He says there's six things, seven actually, that God hates that are detestable. And he lists them out, and here they are. Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and then the last one is here, a person who stirs up conflict in a community, a person who comes in and divides people. One of the best commercials, I hate to admit it, but it's Bud Light. Back in the day, you probably know the one, you know, they show these at football games, but there was this clever commercial, very funny, and it showed a guy in the stands at a football game. And, you know, with Bud Light, their argument was, you know, there was this whole taste great, less filling, right? It's both. So he's sitting in one section of the stands, surrounded by people, and he gets them chanting, taste great, taste great, taste great. And then he just kind of quietly gets up and he walks over to the other section, sits down in the middle of them, less filling, less filling, less filling. And he gets them going on that side. And then he just kind of disappears. And so you have two sections in a football stadium and they're all bantering back and forth and arguing about which one it is. It's kind of that image sometimes in the Christian community, people that love to come in and just kind of mm, get people divided deal with divisive things and focus on them rather than things that bring about unity. Be careful of them. That's the first thing they do. The second thing they do, they put stumbling blocks in people's way. They put obstacles is the word there. They purposely try to trip people up by clever argument, by good, you know what looks like good reasoning, but in reality it's really not. What are two signs of these people? Verse 18. Number one, they're serving their own appetites. They're serving their, themselves, not Christ. This isn't coming from Christ. This is coming from them and their desires and their appetites. Secondly, they use flattery and smooth and deceptive speech. They're, they have good arguments. They're clever. They're, they just kind of can weed around things and get you to think, well, that sounds good, when in reality it's not. I was reading Swindoll in his book, and he says there's four truth filters that we need to run everything through. Here they are. Number one, does, it, is, does what I'm hearing agree with Scripture? Start there. 
And I would encourage you to think all of Scripture, not just a verse or a, even a book, but all of Scripture. Does it agree with Scripture? Secondly, does what I am hearing honor Jesus Christ? Or is it more about me? That's a good filter to run it through. Honors him. Number three, does what I'm hearing help me become more like Christ, more godly? Is it beneficial in my walk, or is it just trivial stuff that really does not matter and does not help me one iota? That's a good filter to run it through, too. And then the fourth one, does what I am hearing build others up or tear them down? Talks about edification, how important that is in the body of Christ. Is it tearing people down? Then chances are it's not of God. So run it through those four filters, and it'll be very helpful. Agreeing with Scripture, honoring Jesus Christ, help me become more like Christ, more godly, and building people up. Those four things are important. Paul says, be wise about what is good, innocent about what is evil, in verse 19. Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Matthew 10. He's getting ready to send out the 12, and they're going to go out witnessing, door to door. He's preparing them. He's saying, be careful as you go out. Here's what Jesus said. I'm sending you out like sheep among, amongst wolves. That sounds encouraging. <laughs> Think about that. Therefore, here's this warning, and it's the same words that Paul uses here. Be shrewd as snakes. It's a very interesting sentence. Innocent as doves. Those adjectives, shrewd, innocent, are the same words that Paul uses here. Wise about what is good. Innocent about what is not good, what is evil. So, wise meaning spiritual and practical wisdom. Understand what really is true. Understanding what is practical. That's wisdom about good things. But be innocent about evil. What does that word mean? It's an interesting word. In one of the commentaries, that word, there's a word picture in that word. It's a reference to a city wall being unscathed or still intact. Innocent. It hasn't been torn down. It hasn't been beat up. It's still intact. It's unscathed. You're innocent in regards to things that are not good, that are evil. Um, and as Christians, it doesn't mean we're just naive, period but it means that we don't need to know all the dark stuff maybe that's going out there in the world. We can have walls around us and it's okay at times. Being innocent. This defeat of Satan, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. There's so much in that verse, but there, it goes back to a promise that was made in Genesis. Genesis 3.15 is the reference that we know where it all started. The first mention of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the curse with, on the serpent that God is talking about. And there's a promise there that one day there's going to be someone who will crush the serpent's head. But the serpent will strike the heel of that seed of the woman. Reference to the cross and what Jesus went through, the death but how in that death he crushed the head of Satan. And what Paul's saying is we enter into that truth, that victory over Satan that was purchased on the cross. We enter into it because we're in Christ Jesus. So there's a reality here and now where we have victory over Satan. His head has been crushed. But there's also a future reality of where we know he's going to end up. Revelation 20 tells us where that is, a lake of fire, 
for all eternity with the ones that follow him and the demons. So it's a future reference. It's a reality right here and now. We live in Christ so we can enjoy the benefits of that. Greetings from Corinth, verses 21 through 23. There's eight people that Paul wants to recognize that are with him in Corinth as he's writing the letter and getting it ready as he's gonna be sending it to Rome that are important to him that he wants to acknowledge. So here they are. Timothy, my coworker, sends his greetings to you as, as Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my fellow Jews. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. We'll talk about him a little bit. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, send you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city director of public works, and our brother, Quartus, send you their greetings. So there's eight people mentioned. Timothy, the first one mentioned. We know the story of Timothy, how Paul led him to the Lord on his second missionary journey, and how at that point, Timothy actually joined Paul and Silas as they continued on on their second journey. And later on, Paul established Timothy in the church at Ephesus, where he was the pastor. And Paul wrote two books, First and Second Timothy, to him, encouraging him along, giving him instruction. How do you do this thing called pastoring? That's really what First and Second Timothy are all about. And Second Timothy is the last book written by Paul. And in that book, it's just this beautiful outpouring of care and love for his, what he considered and who he calls my son in the faith. He's my coworker, but he's my son in the faith. He's very special to me. That's Timothy, verse 21. Then Tertius, verse 22, it mentions a person who most likely wrote, he was the scribe or the person who dictated what Paul said. He would hear Paul, Paul would state to him what he wanted to be written, and Tertius is the one who would write it down for Paul. We know that Paul most likely had some kind of eyesight problem. He mentions it in several of the books. Maybe he struggled to write, but this was customary to have someone scribe it for you and write it. And it's like Tertius is saying, hey, I want to send my greetings, and then he's going to hand the pen over to Paul to finish this letter, in a sense and let Paul bring it to a conclusion. And so Tertius, who is this person? There's something significant about him that's most likely true. The word Tertius literally means third. And oftentimes in slave families, they would name their children first, second, third, fourth. Literally just that. Tertius, third. So he was third in line in his family um, it's very possible he was a slave um, who just, that's what his parents named him. In fact, in verse 23, we have, uh, it mentions uh, Quartus. Uh, I'm looking here real quick. Oh, verse, yeah, verse 23 at the end, Quartus sends you their greetings. So, fourth, that's what that, so po- very possibly a fourth child in a slave home. So it's possible this Tertius was a slave who simply had met Paul somewhere along the way and became his scribe who actually wrote the book of Romans for us. That's amazing. Now here's a question. What happened to verse 24? Does anybody know? I don't know if you noticed, but in in some of your Bibles, not all, verse 24 just kind of disappeared. We go from 23 to 25. What's up with that? 
In, if you take the NIV, there's a little note um, that mentions uh, some manuscripts include here, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. So some manuscripts have that verse there. Some, and in your Bibles, there might be a note saying that's why verse 24 is not here. We, we decided not to include it. Most likely, what happened with verse 24, it was added later. Most likely, there's back and forth on that one. Um, and so they acknowledge it, the NIV, the manuscripts. As time went on, we got better manuscripts and earlier manuscripts that were more accurate, to be honest with you, and better translations happened. Um, and so that's part of this, I believe. And this is most likely maybe an addition by people down the line. It's a good addition, and it's typical of what Paul would have put at the end of most of his letters. He talks about God's grace, and he ends most of his letters that way. It sounds like Paul a lot. So very possibly it was just inserted by some scribes later on, not actually part of Paul's writing. So it's a good question, but it's weird. You read verse 23, then we're into verse 25, where it's the great doxology. This is the conclusion of Paul's book. And I wanna read for you the very beginning of the book because I think he's tying in way back to, Ro to Romans 1. So I wanted to read the first five verses and then Romans 1, 16 and 17 to you um, this morning. Romans 1, 1 to 5. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. That's the first five verses of this great book. And then the theme verse of Romans, and it's, I've been talking about this one the whole way through. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says. It's my life. That's really what he's saying there. It is my life. I live for this. I'm not ashamed because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, kind of a succession. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So as Paul brings his doxology, he's wrapping and he's coming full circle and he's referring back to chapter one of Romans. He starts with God. He who is able to establish you, God. What does that mean? Well, a couple things. Number one, God is, it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone. That's the gospel, that's the story. And then we've learned about justification, that big term. That's simply this, it's an act of God. It's God's work as the judge. It's the act of God by which he declares the believing sinner righteous, not guilty. By grace, through faith, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can be justified by God. So Paul says he's the one who establishes us. It's his work, he's the one who declares us righteous. That's a beautiful fact. And then he talks about my gospel. He's, Paul's very clear, he wants you to know this is his life, and he didn't just pick this up along the way, he got it from Jesus Christ himself. He was taught directly from the Savior. 
Book of Galatians goes into more detail on that, but he didn't just get trained at some seminary. He heard it from the very mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you think his life changed? It kind of did, didn't it? It's my gospel, he says, and it's about Jesus Christ. Romans 1 speaks about as a man, Jesus Christ was the Messiah. He fulfilled all the promises made in the Old Testament. He was the promised one. But because of the resurrection, he was declared with power to be the Son of God. He's fully man, but he's fully God. That's who this Jesus Christ is. Fully God, fully man, coming together and taking our sins to the cross. Representing man, representing God together. It's this beautiful, that he's the centerpiece of my gospel, Paul's saying. And this was all revealed, this mystery, Paul mentions. A mystery, it was unknown in the Old Testament to, for the most part. But it was revealed in these times, Paul says. What is the mystery? It's the gospel. The fact that through Jesus Christ, both Jews and Gentiles can be one, can be part of the family of God. That's the, that's the mystery that's been revealed and was spoken of in the Old Testament. It's a mystery that's been revealed. It's a prophecy that's been fulfilled. That's what Paul's saying. He's tying it all in beautifully. And then he ends with this. He says, to the only wise God, be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The only wise God. He's the one who is true wisdom. The Westminster Shorter Catechism. What is the chief end of man? That's the question, right? What are we here for? What is this life all about? Here's the answer to that question. It's a good question. So what's the answer to that question? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. How's that? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's the chief aim, the chief purpose of mankind. That's why we're here. And that's what Paul would say. And that's where, in fact, that's where it came from. His scripture, that whole purpose of that. I want you to stand. I want to read the doxology. I'm going to have Joe come at this time and the ushers to, for the communion. This is just a finale. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him, through him, and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.